Open Industrial Policy Strategies in partnership with the South African Research Chair in Industrial Development based at the University of Johannesburg and the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition is currently hosting the Apoden IPPM podcast. So we have with us during this 2023 report some talented academics, policymakers and civil society representatives from South Africa and Africa to gain access to alternatives to mainstream thinking on development issues to be equipped in a way that will foster original thinking. Welcome to the Port IPPM podcast, the show where we delve into the fascinating world of development economics. I'm your host, Nandwe, and today we have the privilege of sitting down with a distinguished expert in the field, economist Antonio Andrioni. Thank you. Antonio is widely recognized for his contributions to development economics and has been at the forefront of research in this critical area. Welcome, Antonio. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great. Today we'll be discussing the intricate interplay between financial systems and the diverse financial needs of individuals and nations in the context of economic development. We'll explore the key principles challenges and potential solutions in this dynamic landscape. To kick off things, Antonio, can you give us an overview of the fundamental principles of development economics and why it holds such a significance in the global economic landscape? Well, I think the old problems of development are still the same. It's always been about, you know, how we transform the structure of our economies and as a result of that, how society, institutions, the broader political economy can change as a result of that. And so development economics has always been asking these questions, both at the national and global level, try to understand how countries, especially in the global south, can move away from dependencies that, of course, have been set up uh, during the colonial time. And so all the development uh, discourse and project has always been about not just developing, but also gaining independence and unlocking opportunities for inclusive, sustainable structural transformation. Great. So your first session with the IPPM team was on industrial finance, institutions, financing instruments, and the heterogeneity of productive investments. Why do you mention finance as a critical factor for industrial transformation? Well, as you rightly pointed out, the focus was very much on industrial finance. In a sense, I was trying to um, spend time with our friends, colleagues from around the continent to emphasize the fact that finance become transformative, what is really looking at specific productive needs that societies, economies at even different moments in time are experiencing. In a sense, for many years, especially in the global south, there has been a big focus on microfinance, access to finance. But the emphasis, I think, has become increasingly clear, has to be looking at the biggest challenges of our time. And all the challenges of industrial development, structural transformation remains there. And alongside those, how to channel resources towards not just social needs, but also the needs of climate change, building resilience, adaptation to the big transformation we are all facing. So... Clearly, then, the structure of a country's financial system is impacted by what you mentioned. What are some of the key components of a robust financial system? Yeah, I mean, I think we have for many years been discussing around what is the optimal kind of financial system or institutions that can support structural transformation in the country. 
And, you know, the debate has always been, you know, the extent to which banks or stock markets or other type of institution can do that. Of course, developing banks being a key specific type of banking institutions. And in a sense, I think we are learning more and more that many of these institutions are highly complementary, but it's important to structure them, design them, regulate them in a way that actually serve the fundamental purpose of really channeling resources for transforming the productive structure of these economies. And to a certain extent, the track record is not particularly good in a number of cases, especially we are, you know, talking here from South Africa. This is a country with a very well-developed stock market, but clearly it's a country which has been lagging behind in terms of investment. So having institution in place doesn't mean automatically that they will provide the kind of financial industrial finance in particular support that is needed. So to top up that question, in your opinion, Banks or financial market? I think the banks are central, especially to you know address a number of specific problems, specific sectors. So development banks, sector-specific banks, uh, banks that have an understanding of the specific needs in the economy can play a very important role. Stock markets have been always oversold as a solution to financing problems. In fact, what often they do as an institution, more than allocating financial resources sufficiently, they are actually institutional to extract resources from firms and productive organization. I mean, historically, when we look at the countries at the early stages of development and capitalist accumulation, uh, these countries managed to invest by retaining and reinvesting profits generated within the productive sector. So firms themselves were self-financing lots of this investment. Banks became increasingly important in a number of sectors for infrastructure development and other things. But the stock market, in a sense, is a bit like a late entrant into the picture. And given the high level of financialization that we are seeing in many economies, they are not necessarily a good ingredient, especially at early stages of development. That sounds very cynical, but you have estimated on that point that Africa has a sustainable financing gap of about one6 trillion dollars. How do we bridge this gap for additional financing? Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, all sorts of estimations that are done. I think the recent one that I was referencing in the lecture from the African Development Bank, they are based on a number of targets for investment that are considered necessary to address a number of SDGs, so sustainable development goals. I think the, there are lots of resources. The problem is not just the quantum of the resources, is how to direct resources in a way that address the problems that we are facing. So increasing scale or trying to reach the gap without building capacity to in institutions, in firms, to invest these resources in a productive way might not be actually sufficient. We need to think really how to direct resources, financial resources in the right direction. That's a great point. As trade and policy strategies, like called the FDI tracker, we track foreign direct investment for South Africa and we have noticed the trend in the downward turn. Why do you think Africa's share of global FDI has stagnated? Right. It's not just stagnating. It's actually dramatically collapsing. (laughs) So just this year, I think the numbers are around 45 billion uh, of FDI to the continent. Last year, uh, well, two years ago now, because there's always a time lag in this data, was double that amount. To a certain extent, the continent still suffered from lots of, of course, fluctuation and trends globally. But the fact that um, while there is an opportunity for future development of a more you know, integrated market across the continent, uh, this has not been seen as something that will emerge very quickly and without any problems. So 
big investors who are trying to target the domestic and continental potential future demand are still a bit cautious about where to invest. And the problem is also not just the quantum of FDI, but normally FDI coming to the continent are still targeting extractive industries and those industries where, again, if there is no specific type of industrial policy, you do not have that kind of multiplier effect, that kind of transformative potential that other type of FDI are potentially able to generate. Just to give you the scale, 45 billion of FDI is the kind of scale that big companies like the Taiwan Semiconductor, the TSMC company, has put in place just as a medium low term investment for scaling up new uh, semiconductor and photonics investment in new uh, technologies. So at the global level, 45 billion for an entire continent is actually extremely small amount of resources. And when we look, as I said, at where these resources are going, areas like renewables or technologies of that type are still highly concentrated in few countries. So they are the money that comes in into this investment is mainly concentrated in Morocco, in South Africa, a bit of in Egypt, Kenya. But large part of this huge continent are still not seeing any of these resources coming in. Uh, you've just given us some great examples, but can you add more to some of those examples on how we can tailor or design financial mechanisms so that we are financially attractive for this investment? I think the main issue here is not looking at just finance as an isolated problem. I mean, finance makes sense within a broader industrial strategy where it's one of the tools and ingredients to actually creating conditions for, for example, expanding demand and giving opportunities for markets development. Ultimately, businesses you know, don't simply need finance. You can have finance, but if you don't have a market to develop, finance is itself doesn't, doesn't address the problem. So in my lecture on industrial finance and the discussion with the policymaker, we look at how to incrementally integrate financial instruments from the perspective of the needs of specific industries that are emerging in these different countries at different stages of development. And in some cases, they can be the vehicle of this finance can be development banks, sectoral banks, can be specific type of industrial policy, grants, subsidies, all sorts of different instruments. So the package of these instruments should be the target of our attention, not simply a silver bullet solution. Because normally, we like across the continent to think about silver bullet solution, but actually they don't tend to work so well. Yeah, but I could say that at the moment, as you know, globally and in Africa, we all have one priority at the moment, which is an energy just transition. What would financing it look like for Africa? Hmm. So the track record of the so-called just energy transition partnership has not been particularly, if you want, uh, encouraging in the sense that you know lots of these agreements to finance in the name of just transition energy transition in uh, countries like South Africa which of course was the first one to receive in one of the previous cops a significant amount of money were mainly quite narrow in their perspective they were not looking at the energy transition as part of a broader transformation of these economies and in fact countries who received this finance uh, pushed back the you know kind of global agenda because from the African perspective, many of these countries cannot see any energy transition without a developmental project attached to that. And, you know, making it just simply because we are concerned about the social condition, that is not going to make it sustainable over time. So in order to be inclusive and being more sustainable over time, we really need to embrace a developmental perspective. Recently, I was giving a talk on how to make just transition developmental, just 
thinking about how lots of these resources that are channeled for supporting countries in this process can actually be directed as part of an industrial strategy to create better condition for employment, productivity, resilience in key sectors, if we think about not just climate, but also food security and all these other key areas that are going to become increasingly more important, especially when climate change affects so many sectors. I mean, this is, has been an year where there's been one of the biggest drought in record. This impact, of course, energy system that rely on hydro, but impacts agriculture, impacts food security, impact lots of value chains that need to be developing and becoming more resilient to respond to the needs of, of a growing population. So there is a bit of a crossover going on there. Would you say there's any innovative financial technologies or models that have shown promise in improving financial access and stability in this region? I think the problem in the region is that we don't have any well-developed developmental finance institutions, developmental banks. There are a number of small players which have been, in a sense, trying to address the financial gap. But often they do not have the internal capabilities to actually target investment towards specific needs. So the problem would be to not only looking for financial instruments that can better serve the purpose, but also how to build up capacity in the institutions that exist to actually address this kind of climate change and sustainability transition issues in a more developmental way. If you think about, we have institutions like IDC in South Africa, we have a few development banks which are relatively underfunded across the most, you know, less developed country across the continent. And we have a commercial banking system which is notoriously quite unwilling to actually support medium long-term investment and is more focused on consumptions and other type of financial needs, which of course are important, but, you know, there are trade-offs here that have to be that they call for some sort of prioritization where we direct finance. And I think the, there is a mix of different institutions that can play a role. Central banks at the more macro level can, can create condition to attract finance in a certain a set of sectors. They risk some of these investments to the extent that the investment are targeted and you know, are creating conditions for long, long-term sustainability. But fundamentally, without creating the institution to channel resources, the financial instruments per se will not be sufficient. You know, there is lots of discussion around carbon pricing and all sorts of... I think we are in a situation where we realize that the market alone, with this kind of tweak on the pricing system, does not really deliver quick enough results. So we need to have more coordinated initiative, which again call on the governments, institutions, private public institutions to find a better way to channel resources. Okay, let's pivot before we wrap up. You touched on an aspect in your second lecture to the podiums titled Linking to Industrialize Global Value Chains, Local Production Systems, and Industrial Policy. So I'd like to get your insights on how global value chains, local production systems, and all of these policies can drive economic growth and sustainability in developing nations. Mm. Yeah, this has been a very interesting discussion we had this afternoon where we brought in lots of different cases from around the continent because, you know, lots of this idea around what global value chains, regional value chains are, and how linkages at the local level can develop are very context-specific issues and very sector-specific issues, what is happening in food or mining equipment or other type of value chain, garments, textile. We discussed quite a few of those. 
Each of them have very different conditions, partially because they are operating in regional and in some cases global markets, which have completely different parameters of competitiveness. Often the companies that are in the continent are in a subordinate position in this value chain, which means that they struggle to benefit from their integration. To a certain extent, we know that so far the track record, the evidence doesn't suggest that the GVC integration has been particularly developmental. And the question is how you make it more developmental. What kind of conditions governments need to attach to investment and to international businesses and domestic businesses to actually benefit from potential trade and strategic trade uh, activities. I think so far the discussion has always been pretty much dichotomic one, right? You know, either import substitution or export promotion. And I think the story of the countries which were successful in industrializing and building their local production system is a more complex one. It's one where countries strategically engage with these value chains and increasingly, incrementally, learn how to link back into their own economy and create conditions for firms to emerge, create good employment, create a dynamic of investment that is needed to learn. Fundamentally, these markets and this integration, if they are not creating conditions for learning at the local level, are more extractivist than anything else. So I think that has been a big focus and a big emphasis has been on what kind of industrial policy have been more successful and how to not simply use instruments of industrial policy instruments in a standard way, but how to define them and design them in a way that really meet the specific functions that work better in each country and context. So the problem is not just using, let's say, just a local content or other instrument in a narrow, simply paste and copy type of way, but actually thinking how do we can design that in that specific sector, in that specific country, so that we increase the potential developmental outcome and also we make these policies more enforceable by governments. Because, of course, there are lots of good ideas and policies around the country and around the continent, but often they remain on the design side and on the big report side more than on the implementation side. How was going there? I mean, how does one build this bridge between Africa and the global value chains? Because I know in South Africa, particularly beneficiation is always on the agenda, but like in the other countries on the continent, GVC's participation is largely unprocessed raw materials. Yeah, so there's been quite a lot of evidence around the fact that the GVC integration of African countries has been mainly driven by, even also we're talking about FDI, investment in the extractive industries and the fact that the continent has a significant natural endowment, not just underground, but overground, right? This is the continent where, yeah, exactly, sun, wind, all sorts of different opportunities for creating green hydrogen. Now, the many cases, the engagement with these opportunities has been quite narrowly understood. If you think about the big discussion, for example, in South Africa around the role of green hydrogen, right? Green hydrogen can be very important in a country which has a significant chemical industry, heavy industry like steel and automotive industry. But in order to use the opportunities that this technology offer, we really need to understand what are the applications upstream, downstream, how to move beyond the commercialization strategy, which is narrowly defined around you know, a number of applications and thinking about, for example, the 
impact that green hydrogen can have in terms of attracting investment in some of these heavy industries from countries which otherwise would have been unable to meet specific green and sustainability standards, how to downstream support the use of green hydrogen for increasing the production, for example, of ammonia and other green fertilizers or operating across other sectors. Uh, Ultimately, we know the international market, especially those markets which are using green standards to if you want to close the border to import, if you think about the European Union, for example, as a regulatory state, they're using lots of these standards and parameters to accept companies exporting and selling their market. Well, in order to be able to remain competitive in this area, we need to have a clear strategy how we leverage natural endowments and resources in a way that is not simply extracting resources, but actually even beyond the processing allows to move towards downstream segments of these value chains. And the scale of some of these investments, if we think about, there's lots of discussion around electric vehicles or critical minerals and all sorts of different technologies. The scale is very high, it's very big. So it's not a matter of having a pipe dream, it's a matter of really concretely and how incrementally countries can defy their comparative advantage and move towards developing these competitive advantages new sustainable industries. So you've also made a point here about how linkages to local production stress the importance of place. I mean, with our continent's infrastructure challenges, does place matter? Can you give us some examples of this and maybe opportunities and challenges this poses? Yeah, I mean, this is the story of industrialization, right? Industrialization never happened in a, an homogeneous way in a country or across countries is all attempted to concentrate. And we know that there are good reasons for that. If we look at all countries in the world, from the early industrializer to the late, late industrializers, we can find districts, clusters, hubs of industrial activities emerging in certain areas and becoming the key learning places and the key industrial locations for many of the technologies that we use internationally. Now, the even in South Africa, we have around the Gauteng region, for example, a, an interesting cluster around mining equipment and other kind of technologies related to mining activities, both underground and overground processing. We are talking about that before. Now, the issue is how to find ways to nurture this kind of emerging ecosystems and leveraging the learning potential opportunity that places and concentration agglomeration can offer. Of course, this is not just a matter of what happens at the, in, a, in each places, but also how these places relate to the global economy. And so the relationship between local places, local production system, linkages there, and the vertical relationship with value chains and big international markets and companies is something that has to be shaped, nurtured, and uh, governed in such a way that the economy across the continent starts seeing the emergence of these hubs in a more organic way. There has been lots of, of course, emphasis on trying to build up these things through export promotion zones, special economic zones, they can serve a purpose, but until they do not become organically integrated with the local places and local value chains, they can remain also quite a sort of maquiladora type of model, right? As we have seen in Mexico and other countries around the world. That's a lovely interview. Is there any closing you have on the topic or any words of encouragement, cynical as it all sounds? Thanks. No, it's been very nice to, to be here. It's not my first time engaging with this community and it's always refreshing to see uh, many young colleagues and uh, policymakers who are generally trying to engage with very complex matters. And I think what we are increasingly realizing is that we need to find ways to 
engage with more fundamental structures that are constraining development in these countries and maybe stop thinking about shortcuts and thinking about how incrementally learn from international experiences, from history, from context, and start engaging with, in particular, that very complex nexus that is the transformation of productive structure and transformation of society and the broader political economy. There is no quick recipe or easy way to do it. I think some people used to say the first 300 years are the difficult ones, right? (laughs) Uh, So after that, things start getting better. So I think we'd better try to get on that journey with all the contradiction and problems that imply. Definitely for the children (laughs) of the future, because clearly we're already too late. (laughs) Thank you very much for answering all these questions that have helped us delve into the important relationship between financial systems and the financial needs of individuals and economies in the context of development economics. That brings us to the end of this insightful conversation and a big thank you to our guest economist Antonio for sharing your expertise and shedding light on the critical intersection of development economics and the needs of growing economies, global value chains, local production systems and the role of strategic industrial policy. Your insights have been invaluable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us in this episode of the Accord IPPM special podcast. We hope you found this discussion as enlightening as we did. And if you have any further questions or want to continue the conversation, feel to follow Antonio on his LinkedIn page. Feel free to reach out to us on the Accord website, as well as the LinkedIn and YouTube pages of the Accord Alumni Network. Remember to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your network. Your support helps us to continue bringing you engaging content on economics and global development. Until next time, from London, Machinana. Take care.